I was saying earlier that Thanksgiving is uniquely Judeo-Christian in that we have a God who's our provider, a provision, who calls himself Father. And in an in a anti-supernatural worldview, in a materialistic worldview where every uh, where you believe that we're just bags of dust bumping around into each other. There's not much to be thankful for. You either got a good hand or you didn't. Um, but in our worldview, I'm thankful that God is my daily bread, that he provides for all my needs. When I look at my children, I don't think, oh, another d- bag of dust that just happened to appear. I think this is a blessing straight from God's hand. Um, and in that sense, we are um, we have the unique ability to be thankful. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Acts chapter 2, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We ask in the name of Jesus, the wonderful, mighty, powerful name of Jesus, we ask that you would come settle amongst us this morning, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we do just say that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Lord, we've come to hear your word. Paul told us that this scripture is God-breathed, so we come to it with reverence, with expectation, And Jesus, we just declare that you are worthy, you're holy, you're beautiful, you are all in all. We come today to lay all of our lives down on the altar, to pour out our deepest riches on your feet and declare to the earth that you alone are worthy of our adoration. Hallelujah, we love you. We love you, Lord. It's in the precious name of Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read this morning, verse 37 through 47. We'll finish Acts 2 this morning. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I've been reading um, the works of Jonathan Edwards in my, in my spare time. Um, which I got you know, a handful of kids, so spare time is not so spare these days. Um, but I'm reading particularly um, the sections of Jonathan Edwards' work where he's defending um, the Great Awakenings in America. And one section that I was reading recently, he's um, responding to the critique of some who say that the, the Great Awakening, the revivals that are sweeping across America, cannot be legitimate because they have never, in their spiritual experience, these people say, we have never shaken, we've never fallen down, we've never cried, we've never um, trembled before the Lord. This must not be a legitimate spiritual experience because it's never happened to me. And the second part of the argument is, and because it never happened in church history. So some say, um, scoffers, remember we talked about scoffers in Acts 2, on the day the Spirit is poured out, um, there are some who say, look, these men are just drunk with wine. Go about your way. Don't pay them any mind, any attention. They have nothing to offer you. This is just a bunch of drunks. But then there are others with sincere hearts who look again. So Edward says that, the, this, again, that the, the, the mark of a move of God is not whether or not someone shakes, cries, or gets chill bumps in the altars. The shaking, the crying, and the chill bumps are totally irrelevant as it pertains to whether or not God is moving. What marks whether or not God is moving is if a man comes to the altar, shakes and cries, or doesn't shake and cry, but he leaves and goes home and serves his wife and loves his children and lives holy and blameless, you can be sure that that man met with God, whether he cried or not. So in Brownsville, they used to say, I don't care how high you jump during worship, how straight do you walk when your feet hit the ground? The fruit of the experience is what determines whether or not the experience was a legitimate encounter with God. 
But here the scoffers say, that's never happened to me, and I don't know of that happening in history, so it must be dismissed. It must be demonic fanaticism or just pure emotion. <coughs> and Edwards responds and says, that's an argument at best from personal experience and at worst from a vast ignorance of church history. And so Edwards begins to, remember John Edwards the Puritan, begins to argue um, and, and, and lay out multiple instances through church history where people have encountered God in strange and miraculous ways, where people have trembled in the altars, cried, where people have seen visions, be, been caught up in the presence of God uh, in such a way that they fall or tremble. And Edwards begins to show that all throughout church history, the Holy Spirit has moved as it pleases him. In other words, he's making the argument that, that, that your experience does not confine or constrain the movement of God. God is not constrained by what you've experienced before as to how he will encounter your neighbor. So after giving some documentation of individuals who shook under God's hand, had visions, experienced the gifts of the Spirit and healing, after all of this documentation, Jonathan Edwards begins to um, recount personal family history. And he, um, he inserts in his writing, thank you so much, Daniel, he inserts in his writing um, a testimony from his father. Now, Jonathan Edwards' father, uh, Timothy Edwards, was a, a pastor himself, a dignified man. I told the church earlier, he was wise, dignified, well put together, very much like myself, okay? Very much like me. And so Jonathan Edwards inserted a testimony from his father and he made his father sign it at the end. And so this is what his dad wrote, Timothy Edwards. He said, I well remember that one Mr. Alexander Allen, a Scots gentleman of good credit, that dwelt formerly in this town, showed me a letter that came from Scotland that gave an account of a sermon preached in the city of Edinburgh, as I remember, in the time of the sitting of the General Assembly of Divines in that kingdom, that so affected the people that there was a great and loud cry made throughout the assembly. He says, I remember that there was a man who told me of a preacher in Edinburgh who preached. And when he preached, the entire crowd cried with a great groan. He says, I have also been credibly informed and how often I cannot now say it was such a common thing that when the famous Mr. John Rogers was preaching for some of his hearers, uh, it was common for some of his hearers to cry out. And by what I have heard, I conclude that it was usual for many that heard that very awakening and rousing preacher of God's word to make a great cry in the congregation. So some say there's too much emotion, too much fanaticism going on in these revivals. It can't be of God. And Edward says, no, um, let me give you the testimony of my father who his friends say in Scotland, there's often when John Rogers preaches, there's a great cry and groan and moaning that sweeps across, across the entire congregation. They shout in agony. They feel real conviction. They weep and wail and cry, have mercy on us, God. When they gaze upon the beauty of Jesus, the righteousness, the majesty, the perfection of the Lord Jesus crucified on Calvary on their behalf, they groan and weep and wail. Jesus who wore on his own back their punishment. And Zechariah prophesied in chapter 12, verse 10. This is an incredible, meaningful prophecy. He said this, this is the Lord speaking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, 
on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So as we're studying the sermon of Peter, remember the last two weeks we looked at the sermon of Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in power and conviction. It's important to note that the, the initial fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that on that day, God would pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And listen to the pronouns. It's so important that you listen to these pronouns. So that when they look on me, says Zechariah, long before the coming of Christ, God says, so when they look on me, pronouns, on him whom they have pierced, they shall, when they look on me, On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they'll weep bitterly over him. Zechariah prophesies from the mouth of the Lord when they realize who they've pierced, then they will weep and mourn and wail in Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, I said all that to say this. Luke records for us, the author of Acts, that on the day of Pentecost, the people gathered in uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost and the first sermon is preached. He records for us that when they heard the conclusion of Peter's sermon, he says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When they heard it, they were cut to the heart. It's my prayer that God would raise up men with such conviction and such accuracy in their presentation of the gospel that our culture would bow their knee, cut to the heart, and say, what shall we do? Cut to the heart is a really interesting phrase. It's very rare, not used often in ancient literature. The, the verb, the verbs used there literally mean that they were pierced violently, they were pricked, or or it means to sting. And one of the only other uses of the phrase cut to the heart in ancient literature is Homer. And he used the phrase to describe horses stamping the ground violently and denting the earth with their hooves. As they listened to Peter preach, they were pierced, stung. It was as if their inner man was being stamped violently by a great heavy beast stomping them down. They were crushed. And in sincerity, they asked a very genuine question, a profoundly important question. Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47. Now... When they heard, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so the question lies. They hear Peter preach and their hearts are crushed under conviction. And they ask, what shall we do? Peter's response is repent. I wonder how many preachers in America today would say that. Repent. Have we totally, utterly abandoned any concept of repentance? Because we've so sought comfort in the church today. The primary strategy of church growth in our generation is comfort and entertainment. And conviction, I don't know if you know this or not, I'm going to educate you a little bit here. Conviction is neither comfortable nor entertaining. (laughs) Repent, Peter says. The asking of the question, what shall we do, it indicates faith. They've heard the message and believe the message. And so they ask, what is the application of this message? How do we apply the revelation that we've now received? The scoffers and drunks have, who said these men are drunks, they've already walked away. All that's left is men with crushed hearts. They come to belief. What shall we do? Peter responds, turn, repent, confess your shortcomings, leave your path of rebellion and bring yourself under Christ and under his authority. It's incredibly important for you to know that biblically speaking, faith and repentance, faith and belief, I should say, are are not mere intellectual assents. Coming to believe in Christ is not merely an intellectual assent, but it's an actionable worldview shift that takes place when an individual comes to see their need for Jesus and His saving work. Coming to faith is not coming to a, a doctrine. It's not checking off and saying, I believe this doctrine. It's building the entirety of your life on the doctrine. All of your life. You cannot, listen to me church, you cannot consistently claim to believe that that Jesus is the resurrected Savior of the world and Lord of the universe and then go on living as if that truth has no bearing upon you. If He's Lord, then He's Lord. And so John, the apostle of love, you know, John writes, God is love. John lays his head on the breast of Jesus. John is an intimate and in tune with his emotions kind of man, a lot like Seth. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> Got your sucker. Been working on that one for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Didn't quite sting, but all right. John, the apostle of love. He wrote this in 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The apostle of love, the gracious and kind apostle of love, says God is light and in God there is no darkness. If you say that you have fellowship with him, yet you live a life of darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now, clarity matters, so let's be clear here for a moment. 
No man, no woman is saved by their own works of righteousness. Our message to our community is not put down your alcohol and live sexually pure and then you can be saved. That is not our message. Our message is you have no hope. Cast yourself fully. Cling to the blood of the lamb. The only path of salvation. There is only one. This is an exclusive faith. The only way to the father is through Jesus Christ, Messiah. The way that we come to salvation is by being clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. He imputes it to us. He gifts to us his own righteousness. He lived perfect and he takes off his robe of righteousness and he gifts it in grace to me as I come to faith. Our message is not a message of works. It's a message of grace. You're saved by grace through faith, lest no man can boast, in order that no man can boast. But a child is, is, is not born by breathing oxygen. A child is, is not birthed by breathing air. A child is birthed as the mother travails in labor. The first thing a child does when it's born is breathe air. And so, in the same way, you, you are not, you're not born into the kingdom because of your repentance or because of your works or your noble willingness to lay down your sin. You're not born into the kingdom because of that. You're born into the kingdom because of what Jesus did for you. The first thing the sincere believer does who is born into the kingdom is repent, is breathe. Not born by breathing. It's just the natural first response to salvation is to bear fruit in repentance. And so you could say, I would ask the question, um, if you have no fruit of righteousness in your life, you should ask yourself the question, according to Paul, examine yourself, am I sure that I've really been born again? Because the believer, listen to me, church, don't hear me being harsh, the believer who has really known the beauty of Jesus, all that person can do is long to please him. And if you don't long to please him, I would question whether you've ever really seen him. You're saved because of Jesus' blood on Calvary, because the Spirit has drawn you to faith and you've come to really see and receive Him. But the lifestyle change that takes place at salvation is the first breath of creation. When you believe the message preached and you declare, I will no longer be my own God. My life will no longer be dictated by my own principles or my own ideas or my own values. My life is not about me. It's not for me. I now serve a king, a Lord, not a selfish king who's self-serving, but a king who leads me in sacrifice, a king who loves me so that I could love him. I love because he first loved me. We serve a king who's beautiful and wonderful, and the, and the mantra of the church is, let us please him. Let us live obedient to our master. Let us live lives that extol his glory and his beauty and his majesty. My life is for the glory of Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. When the New Testament church said Jesus is Lord, 
they made that statement within a historical context. And the historical context was first century Roman Empire, where Caesar was lord of all. Caesar was lord of religion. Caesar was lord of uh, your finances. Caesar was, was lord of culture, things that existed within culture. And the first century church, when they said Jesus is lord, they were making a direct declaration that my life does not belong to Caesar. And they were thrown to lions because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. And they were burned at stakes because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. Their confession was not, I am Lord of my own life. I'm an individual Western thinker. I get to call my own shots. No, that's the confession of Southern Christians. Their confession was, Jesus is my master. And only when you come to the place where you can say, Jesus is my master, will you ever come to freedom. Slavery to Christ is real freedom in life. He is my king. Again, clarity. Of course, the believer will wrestle with sin. The same John who says that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If you say you have fellowship with him, yet you walk in darkness, you lie and don't practice the truth. That same John, just a few paragraphs before, says that we all have sin. And if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. John likes to call people liars. And so the believer will wrestle with sin. That's known, man. We will struggle with our flesh. We need to learn to put it to death. We'll wrestle with sin, but the believer does not lay down to sin. The believer does not live in open rebellion. The believer is submitted to the kingdom of Christ. So first Peter says, repent. He urges them, be baptized. Be buried with Christ. Find your identity in his resurrection. Lose your old life in the water and find your new life in the resurrection power of the Spirit. Sell all of your possessions to possess this field with hidden treasure. Sell all that you have to purchase this pearl of great price. Lose your old man to find the new man in Jesus. Repent and be baptized. Surrender your need to be Lord of your own life. Die and you will live. Scripture says that as Peter exhorted them, 3,000 were added that day to the church. And he continued by saying, save yourself from this wicked generation. He does not continue by saying, go on living however you please, whatever makes you happy, do what you would like to do. He says, save yourself for this generation is wicked. Abandon it and come under the authority of Christ. Find forgiveness in his blood. Find life in his spirit. And everything else that happens in our reading today is an expression of this initial repentance. Everything else that happens in this community There's a community of individuals now, some 3,000 added to the 120. There's a community of individuals who have now repented and come under the dominion of beautiful King Jesus. And this community of individuals who have repented now express their repentance in a new ethos, a new atmosphere, a new culture, a culture within their culture. Luke records for us what a repentant community looks like. And I said to the church earlier, I I want your spiritual ears to perk up. I want you to ponder, do we reflect the New Testament church? Do we express repentance in such a way that the New Testament church would find us familiar? If 
if we had a time machine, and I do have one, I just can't quite get it working. Um, if I had that little car, you know, with the weird doors, and we could go back to first century church, and we could put them in the little car with weird doors, and drive them here to, to, to our midst, to our hour, certainly they would be confused by our language and our vehicles, um, but would they find our hearts familiar? Would they find us like them? Would they say, oh, those are different people, but they must know Jesus? Or would we be totally foreign to them? That should terrify us. should terrify us. And so these people, this first community, the scripture says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means that they showed up to church. Okay, they came to church. COVID or no COVID, they were coming. And they gathered to hear the word. They loved to hear the apostles' teach. They were desperate to hear more about Jesus, to hear what Jesus taught. They shored themselves up doctrinally. They wanted to be sure that they were right about what they believed. They listened. They came and listened to what the apostles had to say. But devoting yourself to the teaching of the apostles is not just listening, but it's applying what the apostles had to say. So they weren't just hearers of the apostolic teaching. They were doers of the apostolic teaching. Are we doers of the word? Corporately, they gathered to hear it taught. We need, we desperately need a New Testament church in our community that doesn't just hear the teaching of Christ, but lives it, expresses it, that allows their doctrine to seek to their shoes and walks it out. We need to live selfless. We need to embody truth and grace, love, mercy, and justice. We need people who are willing to lay down all of their lives to reflect Christ to the city. The scripture says that they devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to communion, really loving one another. They were celebrating their union in Christ. Our culture screams at you all day, every day. Your life is about you and for you. And what you should do is take another vacation. What you should do is go ahead and buy that new car that you want. What you should, you deserve a little bit of leisure and rest. When the scriptures scream at you is life is not about you. You will not take your possessions into the kingdom of heaven. There's only one thing on this earth you will take with you into heaven. It's people with hearts beating in their chest. The scriptural concept of life is one with eternity in perspective. And it teaches you to care most about the people around you. It's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he does not teach us to pray my father, but he teaches you to pray our father. Every pronoun in the Lord's prayer is a collective. Our father, forgive us our our trespasses. Lead us, God, not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Why are the pronouns collective? Because God asks of you and demands of you that we pray together, that we live life together. Your life's not about you. Jesus says, the first shall be last. Do you think of yourself first? Are you self-centered? used to say all the time, we're so full of ourselves, we can never be full of the Holy Ghost. And the last shall be first. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. Do we really embody those principles? Are they nice slogans we sticker on our bathroom walls? 
Is the culture of the kingdom something we're serious about? These saints, they cared about community. They went to hear the apostles teaching together. And then they broke bread together. They really lived life with one another. And then the scripture says they would sell their possessions in order to give to the needy. To give to those who had need. For all of those under 40 in the room, that is not socialism. Socialism is theft. It's when the government steals your things to give them to someone else. Socialism is a celebration of covetousness. Socialism, it tries to legislate generosity. You can't legislate generosity. That's called stealing. This isn't socialism. This is real self-sacrifice. It's a willing that I, I, I long to put aside my comfort in order to bless someone else. That, my friends, is called love. Okay, the law of love, when love is expressed in our midst. This is love-driven, love-based. You, you can't legislate love. You want me to tell you how you teach people to love? You don't legislate it. You preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. You preach Christ and Christ crucified. You pray on your face till your children catch a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus. That glimpse, one glimpse of who Jesus is will drive you to love. He compels me to love, the apostle said. And they prayed together. They really prayed together. They asked God for souls. They asked God that his kingdom would come. In Acts chapter 4, they asked that God would continue to perform signs and wonders and miracles in their midst as they boldly preached the gospel. The early church prayed. Prayer was the gasoline that fueled their engine. Prayer. Have we totally abandoned prayer? The scripture says that God added to their numbers daily. They won souls a loving people who really love, who are committed to pure doctrine, who serve one another, who are selfless, and who really pray, these people win souls. They're missional. What does good, spirit-bathed preaching look like on the day of Pentecost? It looks like sinners' hearts being crushed under the hand of God in repentance, birthing a selfless community, who see souls added in their midst day after day. Is that what we look like? Is that who we are? I've been praying this, this week, maybe the last couple of weeks, as I pray for you, and I pray for you daily, often. If not daily, definitely close to daily. Um, I've been praying for you, and I, I pray, Lord, if every family that, that calls this church their church, their home church. I've been praying, Lord, I ask that you make their home a missions outpost. And missionaries in the old day, Oswald Chambers, for instance, they would go into some unknown region. They'd build a little missions outpost where they could feed the poor, where they could teach Bible studies, where the basically ministry happened. And I've been praying, Lord, I pray every household that calls this church home, I pray their home would become a place of ministry where the hurting meet with God, where the sick are healed, where souls are won. Don't come to this church lightly. I'm going to pray you into some things. This is the last thing I do. I may not do anything right. I'm going to weep until you do something, okay? Be sure that you know what you're signing up for. What does our community feel like? It must be. It must be a collective of individuals who truly express repentance. 
Martin Luther in his 95 thesis said that all of the Christian life is repentance. That every day you must wake up and choose to be a living sacrifice. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Every day we choose to get on the altar again and to live as living dead people who have died to our own desires, our own wants, our own dreams, our own pleasures. And we live to see Christ exalted and expressed through us. Is that the kind of people we are? Seth, go ahead and come for me. We'll get ready to close. Let's make sure we crown Jesus as Lord over this house. In prayer this this week, I was sitting in my little chair. It's the, the ugliest chair I've ever seen in my life, but it's comfortable, praise God. Um, sitting in my little chair and praying, and I just had a split little image come to my head, a quick little vision, and I felt like I saw the um, I saw a pair of hands tightening down bolts, building a, like the frame of a house, and I felt the Lord say to my heart, "Unless the Lord builds a house, the man builds in vain, people build in vain." And I felt like the Lord said, "I'm building something here. I'm tightening up down bolts, and I'm building structure." There's going to be a community in our midst that really lives selflessly and sees the gospel penetrate this region. It happens as our lifestyles come into alignment with our proclamation. When there's consistency concerning what we say and how we live, then we become wildly attractive to the unbeliever. Are we consistent? The only way to come to consistency is to really come to repentance. To come to the place where we say, we profess freely, I am not Lord. Jesus is. And serving Jesus makes life sweet. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me. This morning what I want to do is I want to pray just for a moment over us as a community. I want to ask God to lead us in repentance, to lead us in Christ-likeness. And as I conclude praying, Seth's going to lead us in a, in a song that we'll sing corporately just for a moment, and we'll wrap up here. If you would, extend your hands. Just extend, open your hands, your palms to the Lord. Father, we, we, we lay our hearts bare before you this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would show us the areas of our lives that bring you displeasure. May you be pleased with what you see here, God. Lord, poke and prod. Crush us, Lord, where we need to be crushed. Lead us to repentance, Lord. Create in us a clean heart. Renew in these people and my family's life, God. In my life, renew in us a right spirit. Make us a generation with clean hands and a pure heart that can ascend the hill of the Lord and behold the glory of Jesus. We want to look like you. We want to serve you. We want to honor you. We want all of our lives to be wrung out for your glory. God, we come today with all of our precious oil, all of our savings, and we do throw it at your feet and say, holy is Jesus and Jesus alone. You can have all of us today, God. Oh, Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Breathe on this community, this community of believers, Lord. Make us hot with the fire of God. 
teach us to labor in your harvest. Lord, we want to see souls come to know Jesus. We want to see this region shaken for the power and glory of God. Do it in us first, Lord. Do it in us, God. Do it in our homes. Revive us, God. And it'll all be for the glory of Jesus. All praise and adoration belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. Your name be hallowed. Your name be revered. Your name be exalted. Let every idol bow. It's all for the glory of beautiful King Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, let's sing just for a moment. So praise God from home. Blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above As we were praying earlier this morning, we had a couple of words that came forward. Um, We had a couple of words of healing. Um, If you are struggling or know someone who is struggling with ringing in their ears or tinnitus, we want to just invite you to come and get ministry today. Um, If you have been suffering um, with um, tightness in your chest or um, asthma and I told the the first service earlier just because it's common doesn't mean that God is unwilling to heal it so if that's you go ahead and come forward Um, there was also a word for um, if you if your name is Catherine or you know someone who's named Catherine there's a word for prayer for that as well and if um, you've been struggling with um, arthritis pain in your left elbow um we also felt like the Lord spoke Isaiah fifty four fourteen, and it says this. In righteousness, uh, you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. And from terror, for it will not come near you. And we believe that's a word for everyone in this house this morning. 
So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your willingness to heal us. We thank you for your willingness to build this house, God. Father, as a house, we welcome your invitation to repent, God. As a house, Lord, we bend our will to yours this morning. We say, use us. We say yes to you, God, whatever it looks like. Use us for your glory. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the altars are going to remain open, so feel free to come and get prayer. Um, We hope that you have an amazing weekend. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning.